Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Good morning, and welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series. Today we're particularly pleased to open the second semester talk with our director, Professor Iris Bennett. She'll be presenting today. I know most of you know her through our work with our center or in her work as co-chair with Max Bazerman of the Behavioral Insights Group here at the Kennedy School, or in her former role as academic dean here. Um, we're incredibly pleased that her current work has been focusing on how to de-bias how people live and work. On the screen, you'll see the title of her forthcoming book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. And she'll be speaking about a portion of that work which is relayed within the book, How to Design Gender Diversity. Also, I wanted to welcome Paul Barron. Our talk this morning is co-sponsored by the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. And they have an upcoming conference he's going to say a couple words about. Thank you, Victoria. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, my name is Paul Barron. I'm the Associate Director of Academic Ventures at the Radcliffe Institute. We're just up on Broward Street. We're Harvard's Institute of Advanced Study. And we come out of the 125-year history of Radcliffe College at Harvard. And so we're delighted to have the chance to partner with WAP on this fantastic uh, book discussion by uh, Professor Bonnet. Um, one thing we're uh, delighted to partner with and on is something you may have in front of you, which is one of our postcards for our upcoming, thank you, thank you, Heather, our upcoming conference on gender and language. Um, we'll be exploring over a two-day period, starting out with a stand-up comedy uh, discussion on Thursday night, and then a full day of panels and discussions on Friday. The idea of gender and language in our society right now, it's a snapshot, right? It's a big topic. But we want to be looking at it from the perspective of data, from the perspective of pop culture, and from the perspective of the business cycle. So how are all these things concluding and coming together when it concerns uh, uh, gender and language? Um, the Radcliffe Institute, as you know, has a strong gendered background from a 125-year history, but also as an institute. And we bring those into our programming. So we do an annual gender conference on a variety of topics. Last year was on gender and violence. Next year it's going to be on gender and sports. And so we would love to have you be involved with any and all of that. And like I said, Victoria and, and uh, Heather and Nicole, uh, thank you so much for making it possible for us to be involved with this great event. Thanks, Paul. And we're so pleased that there's so many different types of work taking place on gender across the university. I also want to give a special welcome to the faculty assistant groups and thank Carl for his work in encouraging people to join us today. And with that, I know we have a terrific presentation ahead. I'd like to turn it over to Professor Iris Bennett. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, uh, Victoria. And I, think, I mean, please feel free to come in here and sit down here. We are trying to get more chairs, but as you know, space is scarce, and chairs are scarce at the Kennedy School. So everything will be better in two years from now. <laughs> this was still the academic dean speaking. I'm going to leave that in just a second. But literally, if you want to, please. People really should come in. For us to have a kind of talk and discussion, like you know, please feel free to come in and sit. I know there's lots of people still in the hall. Um, we want to make sure people really are comfortable. Sounds like you're comfortable standing, so that's also good. Uh, perfect. 
So thank you so much for coming. Uh, what I'm going to try to do today is something a bit strange. Namely, I am going to try to mainly present the second half of my book. And I'm doing that because I presented the first half at the beginning of the fall semester. And I'm trying to kind of just now get a sense, how many of you have been at that seminar in the fall semester? Can I just see some hands? Not that many. Ah, I see. So not that many. Well, you know, um, I am uh, a bit more risk averse, like most women are, so I was ready for that. <laughs> um, in fact, Carrie helped me prepare my slides was ready for that. So I'm going to give you an overview of what we have been working on over the last uh, five to eight years and what the book is trying to summarize, where the book is trying to take us. But then I'm going to focus very heavily on content gender diversity, in particular gender diversity in groups work. Okay, so Carson's um, example, please all please feel free. Um, and, and thank you so much for the postcards. I was inspired by your postcards, Paul. So we have some postcards too. Okay, so uh, my first slide is a bit of a metaphor, really, for the whole talk of what we're trying to do here. And we are trying not to primarily devise mindsets. Or certainly that's not what we're starting. But we're trying to devise organizations. Or as Victoria said, how we live, work, and learn. And so this is a study that was personally important for me because it was one of the studies that motivated me to really work on gender biases and organizational design. And it was conducted by Code Golden and Cecilia Rice, Code Golden is the heart of the Econ Department. And what they looked at was the following really clever intervention or innovation or both in orchestras. So in the 70s, the major orchestras of the United States realized that they had basically no women. 5% max, 8% women at the time. And they were trying to do something about this. And what they did was to introduce curtains and have musicians audition behind the curtain. With that, they blinded themselves to the demographic characteristics of the musicians, of course. And interestingly enough, when the curtains were introduced, they were sure it would not make a difference because the selection committees and orchestra directors were absolutely convinced that they, of all people, would focus on the music that comes out of them sooner and sooner and not what somebody looks like. It turns out the intervention increased the likelihood that women would advance to future rounds by 55 percentage points, 50 percentage points, to now 38% women of the 10 major orchestras in the United States. It's a good example for us to get started for three reasons. The first one is not just an example, it's real research, trying to unpack what the impact of the curtain was compared to other things that might have happened at the same time. The second one is, I think, is a very powerful demonstration of bias, that even in areas where good people, well-meaning people, who care about the music, and they also care about the tickets they sell, they sell really wanted to maximize the quality of the music, and they still fall prey to what people look like. And then thirdly, and that's most important for my purpose here, it is a demonstration of organizational design. You could have to teach these people, you could have to do lots of different things, but a very easy intervention was, of course, to blind the um, evaluators to the demographic characteristics of the musicians. So that's kind of 
the idea of the whole talk today to make it easier for all of us to do the right thing. And here's another metaphor for you. Uh, many of you must have been in a hotel room which looked a bit something like this, where you had a little key card that would automatically turn the lights on and off. And as you might imagine, that is likely, I haven't studied it, but it's likely much more effective than anything else that these hotels could have done. In many hotels, leave a little sheet on your, uh, on your bed, say, oh, please take care of the environment, you know, do this or that. But sometimes I've seen coupons, you know, here goes our pop shop, five dollars if you don't do X or Y. And this is a little bit of design. So this is that of all of us many to actually turn off that organizations have been trying out in the last 30 years. About 20 years ago, uh, the most likely intervention were diversity training programs. That's when they started. They became really important in this country for many reasons, not just for gender reasons, but also to make sure we're not racially biased, that we're not um, uh, uh, nationalists when you evaluate people. And it turns out I tried quite hard to find evidence uh, from evaluating what diversity training really does. That evidence is not there. So there could be two reasons. One is we've just not studied it enough, and that's certainly true. So I, try, I have to cast the net really widely <laughs> in going to schools. So some of the best evidence actually comes from schools. Where schools, it's not working. It's not picking up enough. Okay. Where schools have um, introduced diversity training programs and have done that in a randomized fashion, where they have given some of the classes diversity training and some others not, so we could really see what difference students makes, and they didn't find that afterwards the kids were more open to people who look different from themselves or were more likely to play with them or invite them to their house. Uh, there's also one good study, which is not an experimental study, but gives us some hints uh, by Frank Dobin of the Harvard Sociology Department looking at correlations between whether an organization has a diversity program or not and the diversity of their workforce. And that correlation coefficient is basically zero. So at this point, I'm not particularly optimistic that diversity training really is going to move the needle. And I'm also not particularly optimistic because generally in behavioral science, we haven't been very good at debiasing de people's minds not just in terms of gender or race or nationality or religion or other demographic and characteristics, but just more generally in terms of cognitive biases. It's really hard for our minds to unlearn. I have a few more kind of interventions here that have been tried out, um, some of them with some success. So in recent years, in particular in the last 15 years or so, many organizations have introduced leadership training programs negotiation training programs, mentoring, sponsorship, um, all of those kind of uh, geared towards women and helping women navigate the field more effectively. Now, critiques of these kinds of approaches would have said that they're wrong because what we're trying to do is fix women. Now, many of you um, are students here at the Kennedy School. I'm sure many of you have taken or are taking a negotiation class so when I teach negotiation, I take a pretty pragmatic view. And I can't tell women, let's wait for another 150 years until we've fixed the system before we help you navigate the system more effectively. So you know, clearly, we have to do both. 
But the evidence you know, on negotiation training is kind of mixed. Uh, the social backlash that women tend to experience from violating gender norms is well and alive. So women still today cannot afford to negotiate as assertively as men can. Sometimes called the competence liability dilemma for women, that women in particular are challenged with the fact that people perceive them as either competent or likable. And that is a very hard kind of bridge uh, to cross. So mentoring, sponsorship, networking, I think uh, as we go down that list, the evidence is a bit more encouraging that yes, it can actually help to have a mentor, particular sponsor, uh, in your organization, for example, who picks up the phone, doesn't just give you advice, and that's the first step that is very important, but who is also willing to pick up the phone, or maybe even more importantly, advocate on your behalf when you're not present. So the evidence there is a bit stronger. So one um, intervention that I've looked at that is actually from my own discipline, uh, which is particularly dismal. So I'm an economist, uh, and the promotion gap, the gender promotion gap in economics today is the largest of all fields. And so a number of senior uh, female economists about now 10 years ago, 2004, a bit longer, started to think about this problem and added a mentorship training leadership program to the American Economic Association meetings. That's our annual big meetings, about 5,000 5, people participate. And uh, I was faculty in a number of these workshops, and we offer workshops to junior um, assistant professors, uh, female assistant professors. And the workshop includes everything from very specifically talking about their research papers, helping them improve their research papers, but also more generic information that's relevant for all of us on how to navigate the field. So what conferences do you have to go to? Do you need to talk to the press? What if the New York Times calls you? Is that a good thing or a bad thing early in a career? Things of that sort. So um, that turned out um, to be an interesting experiment because we were able to literally pick half of the applicants randomly out of the hat and then see what difference difference makes. And everyone knew that these are the rules of the game. So when you apply, it's a 50% chance that you get in. And um, if you do get in, um, as well as if you don't get in, you have to allow us to track what your life looks like for the next 10 years. So we can follow whether this intervention, in fact, made a difference in these women's lives. And that's the best evidence that we currently have, causal evidence on whether mentoring works, and it does. So it did make these uh, female assistant professors more productive, more likely to publish, more likely to publish in the peer-reviewed journals, and more likely to get um, tenure. Okay, so that's uh, kind of a quick, quick run through, um, through kind of where we've been, uh, what many organizations or society more generally has been trying out uh, to date. Now I want to talk about kind of three particular applications of behavioral design. The first one is talent management. So everyone in this room, at some point, if you haven't already, will be involved in this, either because you are interviewing for a job, or you are actually the person evaluating somebody who is applying for a job. Then I want to talk about kind of redesigning work and um, work environments, school environments, and you're welcome to come in if you'd like to. Can you hear me? Or you can't hear me, okay. Uh, work in school environments. I mean, there's lots of space here if you'd like to sit on the floor. Um, so work in space, the work in the school environments, and then, as I said, I want to spend most on kind of teams. 
because again, many of you, when I'm now thinking um, also of the people from um, who are not students who come from the various um, sectors here at the Kennedy School or maybe from across the university, often you do work in teams, and so we want to talk a bit more about what we can say about gender diversity in teams. Okay, so talent management, I want to give you an example that I did not give in the fall. Um, a part of talent management that is at the very, very beginning. So that part of my book is actually very long, and I have lots to say about it, but I want to focus just on one um, thing, which is, in fact, quite closely related to what Radcliffe is planning for March. And that is at the very first stage. How do we attract people? What do we communicate in our job advertisements? And clearly, there's lots of gendered advertising in the world. Here's just Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola and many other soft drink companies, so this is not picking on Coca-Cola by any means. This is Pepsi, this is Dr. Pepper, many others, realized that dying is not for men. So there's two hypotheses. Either men don't care about their weight or have other ways to control it, or diet is just not their word. And that, in fact, is what the research of these companies concluded. And so they introduced, specifically for Coke, Coke Zero. Coke Zero sometimes is called the bloke Coke. And there are advertisements which very specifically say, this is the Coke for men. And as you can see, I mean, the way we advertise for these different products, of course, supports the notion that one is for women only and the other one is for men only. So what does this mean for job advertisements? So let me, in fact, read this one to you. Looking for a warm and caring teacher with exceptional pedagogical and interpersonal skills to work in a supportive, collaborative work environment. That is, I have to say, a sexist act. It speaks primarily to women. Much research has shown that the adjectives that we highlighted here in fact, are more likely to resonate with women than with men. An alternative job ad could have said, looking for an ex excellent teacher with exceptional pedagogical skills, none of these words are gendered. And of course, um, for those of you who will be lucky to go to the Radcliffe Conference, you will learn that this runs very deep, whether we say he or she, whether we are, you know, use inclusive language, um, is, can be really, really relevant in who you attract. So one large study looked at the um, uh, Canadian website and in fact analyzed, first of all, is this a stereotypically male or female job? So for example, human resource assistant versus engineer, and many more. And then they looked at the adjectives that were used to describe those kinds of jobs. And they of course did not only find that we look kind of, or we use feminine adjectives for uh, HR jobs and male adjectives for the engineering jobs, but in fact even controlling for how gendered the job is, people are more likely, women are more likely to apply to jobs that use more feminine language and men are more likely to apply to jobs that use uh, more male language. I use this particular example here because this is something we should really care about. Some of you might, I mean, generally we should care about this, but we should also care about this in particular in terms of teaching. 
Some of you might have um, seen the OECD study that has come out almost a year ago last spring and finding that in OECD countries, boys are now falling behind girls about a year in reading and writing when they're 15 years old. Now, I do have two boys, so I have a very personal stake in this. Um, no, but as a side, uh, one of the reasons is the lack of male role models. And something we actually need to worry about. And of course, the reverse is true in gender stereotypical male jobs. So language is important and is part of design. Uh, there's also very interesting and very worrisome work on uh, how we describe uh, job applicants or how we write letters of reference. And that the words that we use for women tend to be very different from the words that we use for men. So I was in a recent um, uh, promotion round uh, in a company, and, and just one thing that jumped out at me was that women tended to be described as talented, <coughs> while men were just as great. Uh, so I, I was able to point it out in the heat of the moment, um, but it's one of those little examples where people weren't purposely sexist, but it just happens. And so we have to, therefore we have to really think hard about how to help these people, like all of us, who are kind of trying to, go, to be good people, to be more inclusive and less biased. So then quickly um, continuing on to school and work. Of course, I mean, that concerns all of us. And the one aspect here that I want to highlight is the importance of role models. In fact, as Carrie and I were standing up here thinking about my talk, uh, I told Carrie, well, this is a particularly interesting room to talk about this uh, because of the images on our walls. Now, this is a, I'm repeating this story, but it is an important story from Kennedy School. It's a story that I also told in, in September. Uh, it is true that uh, at the Kennedy School about 10 years ago, or maybe now 11, Jenny Mansbridge, who is a professor here and one of the early thinkers, one of the early feminists here at the school, noticed that of our main portraits, zero were of women. And the good news is we've started to change that. You will now see L. Johnson Sirleaf or uh, the um, President of Liberia or Abigail Adams um, uh, on our walls. So we are trying to change what this organization certainly looks like. But let me tell you a bit more about kind of why role models are important. In fact, um, a nice little study was uh, recently done just exposing men and women, and I'm going to focus on women here in particular, uh, to female role models, or in uh, contrast, male role models, or no role model at all. So you basically get a blank um, sheet of paper, or you see Hillary Clinton or Angela Merkel, or you see Bill Clinton. And then they ask the participants to stand up and give a speech. And then they have people in the audience rate the speech. And it is really quite amazing. Women gave more powerful speeches after having been exposed to Hillary Clinton or Angela Merkel. So seeing really is believing. And so what you see on our walls or what you see in an experiment or in front of the classroom or in your organizations does really matter in shaping what we all think is possible for people who look like us. Now, thankfully, the world is starting to change, um, and Star Wars, for the first time, had a female protagonist. 
So this is very happy news about Ray. Now, the concerning news, or really the call to action for us, saying that there's more work to be done, is that then Monopoly created a version of the new, excuse me, of the new Star Wars episode, and sadly forgot to include women. So there are no female figures, or were, in fact, Monopoly is correcting this, and maybe has already corrected this. Um, but it has been, many of you must have read about it, it has been in the media quite a bit. Um, that is really hard to believe, that you would forget the female protagonist, or the protagonist, not the female protagonist, the protagonist of the film as a figure in the, in the game that you are creating based on that very movie. So clearly, <laughs> there's work to be done, more work to be done. And again, you know, I'm assuming, I can't be sure, I'm assuming these weren't actually bad people doing this, but people who just weren't thinking and just were going with their gut. So, much to be done in terms of how we manage our talent, much to be done thinking about what we say in our job advertisements, how we evaluate people when they come into the door, how we do job appraisals. In fact, I do have to say something about job appraisals in, in a second. And then how we treat people you know, kind of along the whole talent um, pipeline. On job appraisals, because um, again, we have um, some faculty assistants here in the room, there is one thing that, uh, there's two things in my book which I hope most organizations, many organizations will pick up around the world. I think these are very low-hanging fruit, and that is typically where we find gender bias. And here's the two. The first one is that many organizations evaluate their employees based on past performance and on potential. And when we go into an organization and measure whether anything is going on, as you might imagine, we find bias not in performance evaluations, but in potential evaluations. That's where the seeing is believing is so important. And if you don't see female role models, female senior partners in your firm, you don't naturally think that women have the potential or even the desire to climb up the career ladder. So potential is a very, very dangerous concept. Um, the easiest solution at this point, until we have come up with something smarter, is to do away with potential. I don't know how we can deal with potential at this point in an unbiased fashion. Uh, in the one organization that I worked with, this was also true for nationality. So it's not just gender. But if you're primarily a American company, or primarily a French company, or a Mexican company, and your leaders are all from Mexico, or all from France, you're not naturally thinking that, oh, an American could succeed in a French company. So this is not you know, in any way um, restricted to gender. It has many more implications. So potential is a big culprit. The second one, which is a culprit, and is very directly related to the work that we do as behavioral scientists, is the following. Many organizations ask their employees to self-evaluate and then hand their ratings to their supervisor or to their manager. Now, this is particularly concerning if you're literally asked to give yourself a rating. So in some companies, for example, that rating scale could be from 1 to 10. So imagine that uh, you are one of the managers and you have a curve 
Many, many organizations do that to make sure that we don't have more lenient managers versus stricter managers. And then you would have given, let's say, your two team members, a woman and a man, both a seven from a scale of 10. If she comes back giving herself a five and he comes back giving himself a nine, you will be very tempted, tempted as a manager to upgrade her a little, give her a six, downgrade him a little, give him an eight, still meet the curve. So on average, you're giving both a seven. But if you hadn't seen the anchors that they've thrown at you, you would have given them different assessments. So again, I know of no study suggesting that sharing this information with managers before they make up their own mind is helpful. I would completely do away with it. Now, if the manager wants to talk to his team members during the evaluation, and even if they want to ask the team managers to self-evaluate, just not share, that's a very, very different story. But we cannot help. That's a very, very basic for our minds. We cannot help disregard or not take into account information that we have been given. So these are just two quick fixes. Yes, please. Absolutely, yes. So women tend to be more generally less self-confident than men. And so that's exactly what we're finding. Yes, so we find that women would, my example was not just thin air, but would in fact be more likely to give themselves a five, and with men would be more likely to give themselves a nine. Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, I'm happy to take some questions before I talk about diversity, before we leave talent management. Um, uh, and you might have to speak up just a little bit. Yes, please. So that's a super important question, um, and I, I would argue there probably is, and here's why, but I don't have no, I have no evidence to prove that. So there's no evidence suggesting that potential does anything. But let me try to kind of be contrarian here to myself and kind of say why, why I'm still thinking that's a not to be cracked and some part of research, my own or somebody else's, should really look at this. So here's why potential could be important. Um, I mean, performance is pretty backward looking. So it does tend to advantage people who have done well in the past. It also tends to advantage people who might already come well endowed, right, with the great kind of with the right kind of degrees, with the right kind of employers on their CV, with the right kind of skills. So in some organizations, and certainly in this very fast moving world, you might actually want to move people or promote people or give them a chance to do something that is completely different from what they have done in the past. And could there be a way for us to predict how well they will do? Now, moving from engineering to HR, I don't know. I'm very doubtful that we'll be able to do that. Um, and I'm the best, my best um, idea so far. Um, and that's not you know, super creative. Um, but that's uh, kind of learning from what works in job applications. So for that stage in hiring, what lots of studies have found is that the best predictor, that won't come as a surprise to you, the best predictor of future performance or success in a firm is a work sample test. Right? So when I hire an RA, um, it's relatively easy for me because I can actually give her or him a job, a little task, you know, analyze this data set, write an article, so I can actually see how well the person is doing. I don't need to interview the person at all. 
Uh, anyway, because I know interviews are just noise. Um, but so, yeah, so we're so, you know, if, if we could think of something like that for potential, so, you know, you want to move into international security, you've never done international security, could there be a way for you to kind of prove or show, demonstrate, that in fact that is your passion and you have the potential to move into that with some sort of for example example. So that's my, my best answer. Yes? So some companies apply 360-degree evaluation, so every boss has a boss, so employees also evaluate the boss. So uh, have you experienced this? Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I have no good evidence of that. Uh, it has, sadly enough, to my knowledge, never been randomly assigned. So there's a bit of a longer answer. So what I'm trying to do in the book is really focus on good evidence. So I'm also trying to be clear when I just don't have evidence. So on the 360s, I'm saying, you know, maybe they're good, maybe they're bad. The evidence that is out there is not in a shape and form where I could make a causal inference between does it work or not. So I don't, the true answer is I don't know. I honestly don't know. And, you know, here, it's a, it's a bit of another challenge. It's actually not that trivial for us to work with an organization, to get the organization to randomly roll something out. So it has clear, um, looking at Sarah here, some of them are, have clear legal constraints. Um, you cannot use a different hiring protocol for some of your people than for, your, for some of your other people. And in hiring, I've learned, it's actually even a little easier. But certainly, I couldn't try on half of my employees to use a potential and on the other half to not use a potential, right? So anything that, that kind of has been done in that is kind of in a pilot phase where people have been rolled in. So for example, on the potential study, what people have done is, let's just see what this would have looked like if we hadn't used potential. So I'm not, and then in the second stage, I'm still using potential. So I'm rolling everyone in, so I'm still treating everyone equally. But to learn, we did this sequentially. So that's it has to be a longer answer because I'd love to know, but I don't think we have good evidence. Yes, please. Yes, I'm curious to know uh, how you devise organizations without devising individuals, because people make up organizations, and I think you need people to actually um, devise organizations. Yeah. So um, I think there's basically two stages. You do need to get buy-in. You do need good people. If people are just oblivious or say, I don't believe in any of this research, I don't believe in what you told me about orchestras, that's just not true. Um, so therefore, I'm not going to do anything. I think we are unbiased. You know, then everything's lost, and I am out the door very quickly. Um, but you know that's kind of not where most organizations are these days. I think most organizations, either because they truly believe it's the right thing to do, or they believe in the business case, which I'll talk about in a second, or again, the law forces them to be more inclusive, kind of have a desire to do the right thing. So therefore, I think that awareness is not my big problem. Most organizations now, kind of, you know, McKinsey again, I have no way of knowing. But that number estimates that in the US, about $8 billion are spent per year on diversity trainings and about $20 billion per year on leadership trainings for women, with very little evidence that anything of any of this is working. <clears throat> so I think organizations do stuff. Uh, so therefore, then, the next question is, how can I move the needle? Now that I work with organizations, 
which kind of want to do the right thing and can have done maybe some of the things on which we don't know whether they're working. Um, and what I'm arguing is rather than now coming in and trying to change mindsets, I'm changing the organization. I'm now, I'm now introducing curtains, I'm now introducing screens in orchestras, and that increases the fraction of women musicians on the orchestra, and that in turn will change mindsets because seeing is believing, and now that I see many women on the orchestra, I'm actually starting to think that that's a job for women. So I I'm not saying mindsets can never change. In fact, I'll, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll talk a bit more about that. So I'm not saying mindsets can never change, but I think the usual, no, I just think, I think increasingly the evidence suggests that often mindsets come after behavioral changes. So that to start with, you're in the dead spot if you take, yeah. Okay, why don't I open my bottle first? I'm also trying to multitask. <laughs> Good thing I'm such a walk. <laughs> hey, this is really my room. <laughs> yeah, it's my biggest challenge when I teach in some of our classrooms that I can't run around. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, to your question, I don't think it's, it's really either or, but I think directly trying to affect mindsets is actually really, really hard. And again, I have no evidence suggesting that we're very good at this. Uh, I do have lots of evidence saying that mindsets follow changes in behavior. So if you see different, if you see female kindergarten teachers and male, excuse me, if you see male kindergarten teachers, all of a sudden we're starting to associate that job with men, and that is also a mindset change. Yes. Um, so you mentioned that there is a huge gender So it's a very good question. Um, I don't think it is an easy research question because we can't easily separate, you know, my function as a role model from my function as a mentor. Uh, so I've had, um, and I think that's a repetition from the fall, but my favorite mentorship um, example is one where very literally one of my mentees called me while she was in the midst of job negotiation and said, I'm in the bathroom and here's where we're at. Can you tell me what I should do next? So that's, you know, maybe not me as a role model at that moment, I would think. Um, but maybe because I teach negotiation, I can say something there. But at the same time, she did have the same gender that I have, and she she is an academic now. She wanted to become an academic. So I presume the fact that I was female also played a role. It's very hard to separate because every mentor, in, in a way, kind of is also a role model. Now, we might be able to look at this a bit more carefully if we said, can people from a different gender, you know, be as effective mentors, right? Then you kind of could say they're not role models, but they're um, they're mentors. So there's a little bit of evidence that that is true. I'm not sure it's just um, the role modeling because. There's also common issues that people of my gender face that men don't face. So we might even talk about, you know, what's the optimal dress code if you give a job talk. And that's a conversation you couldn't have with, with a person of your other sex. So I think it's a hard one to say. Um, honestly, in my personal life, the male mentors have played a huge role. And also because there, were, there are very few women economists. <laughs> 
And when I studied at the University of Zurich, I had zero female professors. Um, so I think, yes, that can work too. Yes, please. Um, I, my name is Elizabeth. Um, I studied originally geology, but I was doing mainframe climate models at Brown and ended up doing software at Lotus and then we were bought by IBM. I was mentored for years by Frank King at IBM, who did the original SAS and SPSS, the data, relational databases. So that was a case of being mentored very well by a male. And, but what I want to speak to, I was a hiring manager and the global career manager for Lotus Organizer, is um, the ideas of the importance of writing um, goals, and, goals and objectives collaboratively with the people that are on your team that work for you. And then uh, I do think it's important for people, especially if we want to change diversity, to let people write their own evaluations because in, in order to change it, I think many people need to be confronted with the idea that I've accomplished this or I've accomplished that, or this is what I've done above and beyond my job. And I think giving people a chance to speak for themselves is a good thing. But I noticed you didn't talk at all about the, the most important thing, which is to collaboratively set goals and objectives for each employee so they know their expectations, so they know what they're being held to. And I think that's really the most important thing if you want to remove potential from past and future from, and so they can be held accountable for what they've done in that given year. Yeah. And I just want to take a part. I took a course as an undergraduate at Wellesley. I was forced to take it around. I asked a very tough question of the professor. Did you know what he said to me? He said, I've never felt so pushed around in front of a class by anyone as by you. And I can guarantee you, if a male, two of my friends are Nobel laureates in climate, had asked that same question, they would have been seen as intellectually curious. I, I guarantee you. And it prompted me to do a forum at Brown on, on feminism. And the world you know, was attended by a lot of people. It was called Not a Feminist Spot. And I was there with a woman. I was going to graduate school for sport, graduate minute. And they'd all sit around and save each other <coughs> house. I'm not a feminist spot. They come out with this extraordinary feminist. <coughs> Statement. Yeah. We had an SR room, but you know, same room only panel at Brown. And yet when we went around and tried to draft panelists, I was still the only person willing to self-identify as a feminist because this was the mid-80s. So that's something else to speak about is we've talked about it a lot. Anyone who's been following the debate about what is really a feminist. Um, I think it's incumbent upon all women to not be afraid of the word. And not to hit men over the head with it either, but to we can so aptly point to the lack of women in boardrooms. And that's the last thing I want to talk about. I sit on some nonprofit boards. The importance of women on corporate boards and nonprofit boards and having a minimum of at least three women um, changes the whole dynamic of a board. So that's, those are my comments. That is actually a great segue into my next section, but I, um, I will try to answer your question. I think you have four interesting points, so I'll get to disentangle them. The first one, thank you for sharing um, the moment when you experience bias in the classroom. And I think that actually is a broader point that you haven't asked me about, but you, mu you might think about. And that is, are women as biased against women as men, more or less? Or are Swiss as biased against Swiss, you know, whatever category you belong to? And basically the answer is yes. We find very little difference in the eyes of the observers. That is, seeing really is believing. And we're all kind of equally biased against male nurses or female CEOs because we don't see men or women in those respective roles. And our own gender plays almost no importance. 
Now, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. It is a bit more complicated than that. But really, the summary is the action is not in the eyes of kind of observer. Now, it gets a bit more complicated because we see that pattern um, for women who have been token women, something that I'm going to go into. Um, and if what you've experienced is not so unusual for women who are in the small minority. It's also not unusual for first generation women who are the first ones to ever become a professor or ever be in science. And because they've had to work really hard, and many of them had to adjust and adapt to kind of play as an Who's going to speak loudly? Um, had to uh, kind of adjust and you know, kind of play the male game. And they may either not like somebody else having an easier time, or they might feel threatened by those kinds of comments. So again, that's a bit of almost a footnote to my major point, which is seeing is believing who you are is plays a small role. In terms of the performance evaluations, you know, sharing your own evaluations. Um, so I, I don't know yet where I'm going to come down on that one. Um, I'm very strongly against sharing your rating. So I'm very strong against sharing numerical figures. And I'm also actually against sharing even verbal descriptions of how good you are before the manager makes up his or her mind. In terms of you know, what happens in the meeting, are we having a collaborative meeting where we talk about how we both see each other? I think that's a very interesting question. Here's my concern about that. If, in fact, women are less self-confident, you know, maybe even then, I am not describing myself as, and I finished project Y, and I've done the great things. And the bragging is still difficult for women, and not you know, unreasonably so. Women do experience social backlash if they are as assertive and as braggish as any male counterparts. Um, by the way, so one company I worked with was a US and Europeans, who found, uh, and Asians, who found very similar patterns for culture too, that Americans are much more used to talk about their accomplishments but in other cultures, that's really shameful to talk about your own accomplishments, and it's very boastful. So that's why I'm a little nervous about you know, letting it happen in me. Um, in terms of goals, I'll get to there kind of at the end of my talk. Uh, so I think I can revisit that point. <coughs> OK, so I think I'm going to talk maybe for another 15 minutes and then open the floor again, um, because your uh, last point on critical mass is actually a kind of a nice lead. Oh, no, I lost the whole thing. I didn't even notice that. OK, that's fine. I know this by heart. You just won't see. <laughs> um, OK, our whole thing went down, not just my voice. OK, good. <laughs> Thank goodness for technology. <laughs> so, uh, so now I'm going to talk about the gender diversity in teams. And the first question that people might ask is does it matter? Meaning, is there a business case for gender diverse teams? And uh, truth be told, I fear that might have been one of the points that has been most oversold. That um, it really requires quite a bit of good research, quite a bit of um, good evidence to kind of understand what's going on in gender diverse teams for a number of reasons. One, a very big question is how are these teams formed? But are these voluntary, were people who voluntarily joined the team, or did one tell, uh, did somebody tell the team what it should look like? Did, did a quota, was a quota imposed on the team? So how the team came to be as important, as is um, what the team 
that actually, but how it really works to find another. So all of those are important, but what is the evidence at this point? So there's two pieces of evidence um, that I'd like to highlight. The first one is, in fact, many studies have been done, I didn't even know that, about 120 studies have been done looking at gender diversity on corporate boards, and is there a correlation? Right? This is not a causation, is there a correlation, is there a relationship between the gender diversity of these boards and the performance of the company? And so one study that is up here and looks at the 2,500 biggest companies in the world and finds what I think is a quite an interesting pattern, kind of a reversal uh, in the trend in 2008. So before 2008, the evidence was pretty mixed um, and maybe homogenous boards were actually better than diverse boards. But post-2008, it looks like the diverse boards, which had at least one or more women, outperformed, it looks like it's a true statement, outperformed the homogenous boards. That's, of course, controlling for everything else that you can control for. Now, this is just correlation. And the study is quite careful in saying, you know, we don't know. Maybe it is, in fact, suggestive of the fact that in turbulent, difficult times with high ambiguity, kind of the post-financial crisis world, diversity really pays. Or it could also be that companies which do many things correctly also are more inclusive of women. Right? So you don't, you don't know how the causality runs. So in meta-analysis now, that I know it's 120 studies, thank you so much for stopping by. I think we're okay. I think Karen could fix it. Thanks so much for coming. Um, so in terms of the meta-analysis, looking at 120 studies, Again, just a small, what they find over, this is now many, many different samples, different time periods, different countries, different types of companies. Just, they find a small premium, a small diversity premium of companies which do have diverse sports. But again, it's correlation. Maybe more important is a um, study which I loved, um, which tried to measure collective intelligence, much like we measure individual intelligence. And what they did was they formed teams of different sizes uh, with different compositions, gender compositions, but also other uh, background, differences in backgrounds, and had them participate in about 20 different tasks for five hours. Um, the study is creative in many ways, first of all, because it looks at so many deep dependent variables. Many other studies have just looked at, you know, are diverse teams better at X, solving math problems, or better at Y, um, kind of uh, being a uh, crew in an airplane. Now, this study here looked at lots of different tasks, math problems, creativity problems, architectural design, lots of different things, and they do find that gender-diverse teams score higher in terms of collective intelligence. And it's an important finding because the other finding that they have is the average individual intelligence factor is very little correlated with how well the team does. Right? A team of stars only, kind of the Nobel laureates that the lady um, uh, mentioned before, you know, might not actually do so well. So it's the complementarity of the perspectives and the skills that are very useful. And that's what this study found about gender diverse teams, the ability to listen. Listen and build on what other people have been saying or question what other people have been saying and diverse teams, much evidence suggests, that are much more likely to actually do a good job trying to avoid falling to groupthink. 
So that's uh, kind of the first observation, that we do have evidence of the business case. Um, it's not, I think, our primary motivation, certainly not my primary motivation or the primary motivation of the Women in Public Policy Program to care. I, mean, I think we need to care about gender equality because it's just the right thing to do. Uh, not necessarily only because it's a smart thing to do. Maybe that's just the beginning of us going downhill again, but Kelly, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. As long as we have some pictures, that's actually good. <laughs> okay, so how do we craft groups? Um, an observation that was made before is actually an important one. Critical mass does matter. So being the only one is very often. Again, it's no gender phenomenon. Uh, any, if you are the only one, the only Swiss, the only economist, the only woman, the only man, the only African American, um, you will stand out, and you feel that you, will, you are standing out. Uh, and you know, if ever you have gone to a party or even you know, attended school with your students, you will have observed that we're naturally drawn. And if we don't know anyone, people who look like ourselves. There's a group of women that come to the room the only one. I'm certainly much more likely to go um, so, critical mass is important, it changes lots of things, it also changes how people perceive themselves. So not just how we perceive by others, but as the comment was made, it also affects how we think about ourselves. Are we perceiving ourselves as token and kind of need to kind of live up to, you know, I'm the representative of all Swiss at the Kennedy School, therefore, you know, that's what I'll be doing. Or am I here because you care about you know, my, my qualifications as behavioral economists. So it's very liberal, liberating if people perceive you for what you would like to be perceived for your expertise in that case. So critical mass is important. Now, having said this, I'm going to be a bit comparative here. There are very interesting places where homogenous groups do better than diverse groups. Ah, here you are. I've to be looking for you. <laughs> I didn't even see that you moved up. Yeah. The coming day. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'll try again. Um, a diversity of voice. You know, so, um, so there are interesting places, and I've been trying to tease that apart a little bit. So one of the places to look is where coordination, and that's going to sound now very game theoretic, coordination of beliefs is very important. And here's what I mean with that. So here's my example of microfinance. Turns out microfinance groups um, are primarily, consist primarily of women. About 80% of microfinance groups are female only, and then there are some mixed groups, and even those groups typically have majority female membership. And that's kind of curious, and so a lot of research has gone into understanding that. Does it matter? You know, why, why is that so? Rohini Pandey here at the Kennedy School has done some very interesting work on, on that question. And it turns out that in um, uh, one paper that we did, that um, Fiona Gregg and I did in Kenya, where we tried to kind of unpack that question a little bit, what we found was that women were just more likely to trust other women. And it turns out that, in fact, they were too pessimistic about men in our sample. So this is a sample of Nairobi slum. Um, I don't, you know, no way of knowing how generalizable that is, but the men would have cooperated more, but, um, would have cooperated more. I'm not going to give up that game. I think I'm enough diversity for my voice. <laughs> um, yeah. so these are the merits of homogeneity. Um, so, yes, the women 
were more likely to trust other women, and that became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right? They only ever offered to give a loan to other women, and then they were happy to see that their loans were repaid. But when we offered loans, the men would actually have repaid them too. So some of this could just be self-fulfilling prophecy. But these beliefs in our heads, and the stereotypes that we have about each other, can help us coordinate in a very interesting way. Here's another example um, in this country. So some of you might have seen Friend or Foe. Uh, it's an, a show which builds a bit of game theory where people basically can even affect our corporate. And so the question is again, if I believe that you're a corporator, then I'm a corporate as well. But in fact, in the show, it was even for those who do game theory dominant strategy to defect. So ideally, I would want you to cooperate, and then I would sneakily defect, and I would get a big pot of money. And that's big money now, we're talking $10,000, $100,000. But if both of us defect, we both go home with nothing. So we're playing this game, we're trying to read each other, and we have done a little team task beforehand. And of course, very, very difficult to predict some of the but Felix Oberholtz, who's a professor at the business school and a colleague, um, did something quite creative. They were wondering whether people learn. So this episode here was aired in different years. So people, late contestants, could watch what has happened last year. And that's literally what the researchers did too. They could learn from just watching, they're all online, from watching all these episodes, and maybe, for example, just looking at people's characteristics or their types were more likely to be cooperative. And they found that all female teams were more likely to cooperate with one another in the first series. Then that became self-fulfilling prophecy. Then the contestants in the next series knew, oh my god, I'm doomed, I'm the man, or it is you know, literally true, or self-fulfilling prophecy, here with another woman, assuming that she has seen the same thing, we're both going to cooperate, we'll do better. So that's cooperation on a stereotype. You know, is it good or bad? It's not pretty. And stereotypes are not pretty. But they work. They affect our beliefs. They affect how we think. And they can make coordination in microfinance groups for cooperation is a big deal, or even you know, in um, um, friend or four, so more effective. And that's by the way, other people have looked at game shows in other countries, but this is not an American phenomenon. That's kind of more broadly true. Here's the final thing I say about homogenous groups. There's actually something to be said for same-sex education. This is not, so my kids don't go to same-sex school. It's not how I would have, how I approached my own stereotype, how I approached the evidence. But the more I read about good studies where, where classes were randomly composed, randomly seeing 10%, 20%, 30%, 50% of each sex, does it matter, kind of do suggest that in particular, women benefit from same-sex education. So, so you know, that's important for us to kind of think about when we think about diversity. We need to have a good understanding, you know, when does it work? What are the environments where we try to do some problem solving, some collective task, where diversity generally is a plus? And where are we just kind of trying to coordinate on our beliefs which is the case in microfinance or corporation. But I'll end kind of that section here by going back to what I said earlier, and that is, yes, it is a numbers game, but it's not just a numbers game. How you get to the table and what happens at the table possibly is equally or more important. 
So here are two studies, just two examples, which both are, I think, very easy, kind of very intuitive to understand. One looked at the decision rules in the group. So at the end, how do you decide? Somebody can say, everyone agrees, and then it's kind of, mm -hmm. or is it formal voting, or, you know, how does that happen? And it turns out, again, not surprisingly, unanimity is good for diversity. If, you're, if the rule is unanimity, the majority is not going to dominate the minority. Every voice counts. And so therefore, we're more likely to want to hear every voice and be inclusive and have every voice kind of included in, um, in the process. But that's been a very interesting study, just looking at the decision rules uh, that operate in NT. It's even better, of course, if you don't vote publicly. Some of you might be familiar with Dan Levy's and Richard Zeckhauser's work on kind of hand raising in the classroom. And those of you who have been in the classroom kind of know how this works. Uh huh. Yeah, Susan, Joe, and yeah, and you know Jamil. So my name is. So it's even better if you do this anonymously. That's a real incentive for the leader of the group to want to have everyone. Uh, the other study, which might have surprised me even more, but in retrospect not as much, but initially it surprised me a little bit, is that uh, political correctness really works. This is the first piece of evidence that I've seen that political correctness can serve you know, a really productive purpose. Um, I mean, some people have been concerned that we're just suppressing um, our emotions, our gut reactions, and therefore there's going to be backlash and we'll lash back in some other environment. Now, I can't exclude that. <coughs> But what the study showed quite convincingly, um, that's what I'm going to move next, is that you know, not allowing certain jokes to be made, not allowing certain sexist language or racist language to take place can actually change the norms of engagement and eventually, go back to our earlier point, maybe even changing mindsets. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. Because um, that's um, kind of a, 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 my next big topic. And that is kind of you know, the shaping of norms. And here's a little image that I think is self-explanatory. Namely, where would you be more likely to drop a piece of paper? And that is kind of my analogy to political correctness. And if you have a clean environment where nobody drops a piece of paper or nobody makes a hurtful joke, you won't be the only one. You would not want to be the only one who does. And that's what political correctness does. And that's what the clean beach does. Now, neither the clean beach nor political correctness tells us anything about what we call in economics externalities, right? I might go to the next beach, and as soon as I see a dirty beach, I'm going to have my sexist joke. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, that's, that, that's a big question. It's one of the big questions. Um, still on this research on, you know, debiasing minds. Meaning, you know, do we just have a need to do some bad things in life? And so now we're reshaping the world, we're trying it harder to, for us to do the bad things, whether it is a sexism or, or racism or littering. And by fixing some environments, we're just moving me to another environment. We're now a fan dump on So that's still a very open question, and I don't think any researcher will ever know. But in any case, um, that doesn't mean that, you know, as an organization, and when I was academic dean at Kennedy School or director of WAP, we shouldn't strive for our group or for our school 
to be the clean place rather than the dirty place. So you all are kind of norm entrepreneurs in many different ways, and we see norm entrepreneurship in, 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 you know, in all corners of life. And it has had some enormous effects, um, including in this country. So one of the most uh, heavily cited examples is, of course, smoking. It's really interesting to analyze the history of smoking, of how there was a time when everyone smoked, or most everyone, and nobody could tell anyone, please not smoke, what you were to do. And then it changed slowly, eventually, enabling or empowering non-smokers to tell the smokers that it wasn't appropriate to smoke while they were having dinner. And then, you know, so, and then the law caught up, and eventually was forbidden, so it was kind of back and forth, but the norms had to change. And then there are, of course, different norms at different countries. So my home country is Switzerland. Very helmet when you ride your bicycle is being uncool. <laughs> and being stupid. <laughs> But when I was a kid, in my, my son is a teenager, in my son's class, we were at home. So the, these things happen differently in different parts of the world. The national, there's a very nice norm study of the National Hockey League and how kind of safety became kind of predominant equilibrium, how deviating from safety became kind of a bad thing to do when that wasn't the case 30 years ago. It was really unmanly to, you know, to protect yourself. So how do we do that? So just some very, very, very simple um, insights. How do you shape norms? So this is how the US tried to shape our eating norms for a long time, about 50 years. Uh, you might recall the food pyramid. Um, and the problem with the food pyramid is we don't typically eat from here. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that's why you have to have the to get the deep insights <laughs> into human behavior. But in fact, it was a Harvard professor who came up with this ingenious plate <laughs> saying, maybe we could just present this information a bit more intuitively. Um, and so that's the new, uh, uh, the new way uh, that this information is presented in the United States. And for example, for me, personally, I did have an aha moment as in, oh my god, I love dairy. And that dairy thing is so small. <laughs> I had not noticed that before. So, uh, I mean, yeah, it's a bit of a joke. Actually, it's quite important and quite relevant. A lot of research has gone into healthy eating, presenting of information, the language we use, how we frame it, how we present it. And the, the short summary is it has to be simple. Again, this is not rocket science has to be simple, has to be salient, and I have a good salient example in a moment, um, and very importantly, comparative. Uh, and that goes back to um, some of my own research, which I haven't discussed today, talent management, uh, which is a broader insight from behavioral science, and that is everything you perceive, every judgment you make, whether you like the food today or not, has something to do with the foods you're used to. We are comparators by nature. Whether this is hot or cold in here has something to do with the kind of temperatures that you're used to. So that is very helpful in the choose my plate. It's so comparative. You kind of know, you know, fruits is smaller than vegetables, which again is sad news for me, but you know, so be it. So there's lots to be said kind of for presenting information better and for going in that direction of kind of you know making generally things more transparent. And that's my last topic that I want to cover, um, also in terms of gender diversity. 
So here's uh, one of my favorite studies looking at the impact of information and information present, presentation. Um, and that's just looking at food safety in restaurants. So that, the, the, probably most of you have noticed that before. If you haven't, you should, if you go to a restaurant next time. And then is there a health inspection grade in the restaurant window? It is simple, ABC. It is very salient, it's pretty big. It's comparative. Everyone knows that an A is better than a C. And it has been proven experimentally that it affects where people go to a restaurant and, thankfully, improved the quality of restaurants. So that's the power of you know, transparency and of information disclosure. There's other examples um, that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on now, but um, other examples in terms of energy efficiency. Um, as I mentioned, calorie information, um, you probably are familiar that um, some states, not all states, have ruled that the chain restaurants now have to provide calorie information. Super interesting research going into that as well. It doesn't always work. Very much, again, depends. Do you do it saliently? Do you do it simply? Do you do it comparatively? Um, saying that a Big Mac menu has 800 calories is much more effective. For example, if you say and the average recommended intake for an adult is 2,200 calories. So what's 800 calories? I mean, probably everyone in this room kind of knows that it's like kind of a little off but, you know, for, for a meal, but many people don't. So, so that's, um, that's all very good. So I'm going to end by talking about diversity and um, really on a happy and sad note. Sad note is we do this very badly in this So this is um, the SEC, uh, the SEC language. I'm actually going to read from my screen here. So now in the US, companies have to disclose the following. Whether diversity is a factor in considering candidates for nomination to the board of directors, how diversity is considered in that process, and how the company assesses the effectiveness of its policy for considering diversity. Um, summary is uh, not working very well. What's diversity? How do you measure it? It's not comparative, it's not salient, not simple. It hasn't had any, um, any noticeable effect. Now, again, it's not an experiment, but so far hasn't had um, any noticeable effect. Um, other countries, so this is Singapore, are much more specific. So the board committees should com compress directors um, who as a group provide appropriate balance of diversity of skills, experience, gender, and knowledge of the company. So at least we're a bit more specific now. What's diversity? What do we mean? Could be more specific. Could go into race, could go into nationality. Um, now, this is my favorite approach, and you don't have to read it. Um, but again, it builds on insights from behavioral science. Um, so this is an approach that the UK has adopted in many other European countries. And they combine uh, what you described to us before, excuse me, that's, I think, a little later, on goal setting and transparency. And that goes as follows. I'm going to go back to the slide here. goes as follows. So first of all, we're setting a goal. The UK, in 2011, set the goal of increasing gender diversity in the public to 25% without quotes. So they have a goal by the end of 2015. They reached that goal. They more than doubled the fraction of women in about four years. But that's the 100 companies, biggest 100 companies. And they did it using and nudging the world out of companies. So lots of nudges, lots of behavioral insights. Um, in itself, a very interesting case study. But one important thing was this goal setting and then breaking down the goals for companies. So the companies had to go back, come back and say, you know, we only have one goal. Let's say 10 directors, 10%. 
of our directors. Our key man in 2011. What is our goal for next year? What is our goal for the following year? So one important insight that my goal setting is they have to be achievable. They have to be, again, it's not rocket science. It has to be a stretch, but it has to be achievable. But it's measurable, it's countable, and then if you don't reach that, and that's why it's called comply or explain, you have to explain. You either comply or you justify why you did it. So we're changing the default. Like the default now normal is you are going to do this. We're just, that's just what we're expecting. And it's changing the default. If you don't do it, then you have to explain. The default setting, we of course know that from uh, the law, innocent unless proven guilty, is super powerful. A super powerful behavioral kind of mechanism to motivate um, people's behavior. So that's what um, the countries which have had some movement have done. Of course, the countries which have introduced quotas have also seen some movement, uh, but that's not a behavioral intervention. Okay, so I'm going to end by um, talking about pay transparency and accountability as um, my second to last slide. So very excited about pay transparency in this country. Those of you who have been following it, last week was an amazing week, and Victoria was part of the week. She was in Washington when um, Obama made the announcement um, on Friday. This state actually has been at the forefront, um, again, with uh, the involvement of the Women in Public Policy Program at the Boston Workforce Council to really change the dynamics around and pay um, equity. And so, yes, the transparency is, um, I'm very excited about transparency. It's going to open all kinds of doors, um, interesting doors for us to measure, understand, and for organizations to fix what's broken and not just throw you know, another, another intervention at people. But let me just say this. All of this is great, but the comply or explain approach should remind us that at the end of the day, people need to be held accountable. We can't just measure and do things. Although, you know, I love data, I love to work with data, but somehow we have to kind of bring closure to this. And somebody has to be able to justify, you know, why did we do what we did? And there's really, really interesting research by Jen Lerner, who is a professor here at the school, and many others on accountability. It's a super powerful tool. Even the weakest form of accountability where you just have to justify actions <coughs> to your colleagues. It doesn't even have to be the public, just your colleagues. Why do they just do that? Will make you more egalitarian. This is one study here where people had to mark essays. This is an Israeli study. And um, working with Ashkenazi and Sephardi background Jews, and they could show that if people are just creating the essays, they did discriminate. But if they had to afterwards justify why they did what they did, they were much more objective and accurate in their assessments. So accountability is something uh, literally not sincere. And with that, um, I wish you lots of luck and fun and promoting change at the Kennedy School in your teams or wherever you might work. So thank you very much. I'm sorry we're out of time, um, but this seminar takes place every Thursday, so please come back. We have lots of more great speakers um, joining us, and I think I'm meeting with the faculty assistant group now, so those of you who are in the faculty assistant group and want to hang out and talk a bit more about this or anything else, then please do stay here.
And next week we have Alexander Kilwald, who's an associate professor of sociology here at Harvard, and it's co-sponsored by the Weatherhead Institute on Gender Equality. The topic is new evidence against a causal marriage wage premium.